Welcome to episode 31 of Coffee and Tea with Dustin. The theme of today's podcast is the middle path. This is a Buddhist concept that can be applied to a spiritual practice, um, a fitness practice, a movement practice, uh, and just life in general. Uh, I'm going to read a couple things today. Uh, This first thing I'm going to read has some Vietnamese words and some French words that I know I'll definitely mispronounce. So if you know the proper pronunciation of those words, please forgive me. Um, This is from the magazine Tricycle, Spring 2021, The Buddhist Review. It's an article titled Thich Nhat Hanh in Paris. The author reflects on the time he spent with the revered Vietnamese Zen monk in the early 1970s by Fred Epsteiner. In the early 70s, my life was totally focused on formal Zen meditation practice. I was living full-time at the Rochester Zen Center, where each day we residents would sit for three to four hours. The exception was the one week each month when we sat for even longer periods in silent retreat. During retreats, there was great emphasis on achieving a breakthrough experience, or kinsho. At the time, I thought this was the whole of Zen practice. I had committed my life to it. But that changed in 1975, when I discovered that I wasn't seeing the full picture. That was the year I met Thich Nhat Hanh. Thich Nhat Hanh was not a household name back then. I became aware of his work when a friend mailed me a New York Times op-ed from December 1972 on the Buddhist peace movement in Vietnam. The column was perceptive and compassionate. It focused on nonviolence and reconciliation, emphasizing the extreme suffering inflicted on ordinary Vietnamese citizens by two warring factions locked in a violent struggle for dominance. The author, of course, was Thich Nhat Hanh, or Tay, uh, in parentheses, teacher, as his students called him. I'd never heard of Tay, nor had I ever heard of any Zen monk so deeply involved in a nonviolent anti-war movement. At that point in its development, the American Zen community focused on teachings and practices related to an on-the-cushion meditative life. But I soon became determined to track this monk down. Through the Catholic Peace Movement and the organization Fellowship of Reconciliation, the communities to whom Tay was best known at the time, I was able to locate him in Paris. I wrote him a letter, and he wrote me back. This developed into a correspondence with the eventual co-founders of Plum Village, Tay and his student from Vietnam, Cao Nak Phuong, or Sister Phuong, as she was called. She later took the name Sister Chan Kong. I started publicizing the activities of their group, the Vietnamese Buddhist Peace Delegation. Among the larger Buddhist community in the States, and raising funds for their projects to alleviate the suffering of war refugees in Vietnam. However, it would still be several years before I was able to make the trip to France to meet them face to face, an encounter that would challenge almost everything I thought I knew about Zen. 
1975, the Plum Village Monastery in southern France was hardly even a dream. Tay was living in a small apartment in the Parisian suburb of Sco, along with Sister Fuang, and was assisted by an American secretary, Moby Ho. At that time, he was not publicly functioning as a Zen teacher. His main role in France was as the representative of the Unified Buddhist Church of Vietnam and the leader of the Vietnamese Buddhist Peace Delegation. Tay did not wear monastic robes then. He dressed simply in brown pants and shirts. In colder weather, he favored a type of brown jacket, modeling himself after French worker priests and ordained Catholic activists like the Berrigan brothers in the States. While still personally following their monastic commitments, these men lived outside the formal structures and strictures of the church and actively participated in bettering the lives of their society. At this time in his life, Tay mostly clashed with the overseas Vietnamese community, as the majority were either actively pro-Saigon or pro-National Liberation Front. Of course, Tay was neither. Life in Sco did not look much like my meditation-packed days in Rochester. Most of our time was dedicated to fundraising and letter-writing to help refugees, orphans, and other displaced and forgotten Vietnamese citizens and publicizing the movement for peace and reconciliation being conducted by the UBC. The days were long, and the news from Vietnam was often heartbreaking. Yet there was always time for meditation and mindful outdoor walking. Every day there would be some downtime from the refugee work that Tay and Phuong were focused on. And we would usually take a walk along the tree-lined streets of Sco to a nearby park. But although Tay was deeply loved by all, not everyone wanted to take the afternoon walk with him. His naturally slow-paced, mindful walking meant that he and his companions would rarely reach the beautiful park. Most of the time, they didn't get much further than a few blocks from the apartment before they had to turn back. There were plenty of lively activities to enjoy together, discussions on Dharma and Buddhist social work, tea drinking, poetry recitation, and meal preparation. There was also a lot of singing, especially after dinner. Sister Fong's voice was mesmerizing, and her brother was a well-known nightclub singer in South Vietnam and a frequent visitor to their apartment. He was not involved in their Buddhist or political activities, but we all welcomed him and enjoyed his energetic, humorous songs and his guitar accompaniment. More than being simply an exemplar of Buddhist social activist and tireless proponent of nonviolence, which he definitely was, Tay was a powerful Zen teacher for me. During the several weeks when I lived with him in Sko, he let no opportunity pass without either subtly or forthrightly challenging and even undermining most of the Zen practice tenets that I tightly held onto at the time. When I would proudly tell him about the many hours we sat in meditation at the Zen center, he would counter by deflating the importance of this formal practice and saying that how we led our daily lives was the most important part of Zen. He asked me this, if one sits three hours daily in formal meditation and spends the rest of one's waking hours doing various other activities, which part of the day is more important to one's well-being? 
If all one's emphasis is on the quality of one's three-hour meditation life and not on the quality of one's daily life, isn't this life acutely out of balance? The fact that he was more interested in the lives of practitioners than in their practice baffled me. And he repeatedly interrogated me. Are these American Zen practitioners happy? Do they have good family relationships? Do they know how to love? These questions were not entirely rhetorical. He had had little to no contact with the developments of Zen Buddhism in the West, which made me a source of great interest, curiosity, and perhaps even amusement for him. He was surprised that American Buddhist centers and temple and temples practitioners would chant Buddhist sutras and other prayers and texts in a language that they didn't understand, Japanese, Tibetan, or Chinese. He insisted that Buddhism can only thrive in the West, as it has in Asia, when it adopts the cultural norms of the country it is entering. Buddhist texts and prayers have meaning, he would say, and need to be chanted in the chanter's native language. I remember how, after talking with him each day, I would take a long afternoon walk with my wife, Erica, attempting to digest and process what Tay had been throwing at me over the past 24 hours. It was hard to accept this intense shift he was proposing to me and the radical and open quality of his thinking. Confronted with this, confronted with his continued onslaught against all my cherished beliefs about Zen practice, I was initially defensive, then confused, then a bit distraught, and finally liberated. The lopsided practice that I had known for the previous seven years now had the opportunity to become more balanced or even completely refashioned. Such was his effect on me. It seemed that no matter what belief I held to at the time, Tay took great delight in directly challenging it. He knew I was a strict vegetarian, but at the time he and Fuang followed a traditional Vietnamese eating style that from time to time might include small amounts of fish or meat. I remember how one day, when the food being prepared had some fish or meat in it, Tay looked directly at me as we sat at the t dining table and said with a mischievous smile, I know that Fred, being a good bodhisattva, would never refuse to eat food that someone especially prepared for him. Tay had a visceral distaste for the austere, austere and samurai-like quality of the Zen I was training in. I shared with him the seriousness of how we practiced. For instance, no moving was allowed during periods of sitting meditation. When I mentioned the continual application by meditation hall monitors of the kaisaku wooden stick on the shoulders of meditators to spur them on to more focused and energetic meditation, he winced. Then he talked to me about nonviolence and how Buddhists shouldn't be violent or aggressive toward other people or to their own bodies. Whenever I mention the single-minded focus of our Zen retreats on having a breakthrough experience, he would regale me with Zen anecdotes about do-or-die practitioners who actually did die without experiencing an awakening. He would tell me other stories to show the futility of that aggressive mentality and the harm such do-or-die encouragement talks could cause if they were not delivered skillfully. At the Zen Center, nearly everyone who was serious about practice 
would be given the cone Mu, which became the focus of their meditative life. The tradition was to work on this cone until one had a Kinsho experience. One year, three years, five years. One stayed with this practice no matter what. Tay found this to be incredibly rigid. He said that meditation practices, including cone practice, were there simply to aid the practitioner in awakening. His instruction to me, if you're not getting good results from one practice, talk with your teacher and try another. Directly contradicted the meditative mentorship I had been receiving. He believed that the meditative life should be a creative and experimental journey and that one should receive meditative practices that would produce the healing and transformation necessary for oneself. They taught me about a more open, spacious, and gentle Zen practice that he had learned from his teachers. Zen practice, he would say, is about a continual wakefulness and ripening, not intense periods of targeted meditative practice. Over and over, he would tell me that to be truly beneficial to the practitioner and society, transformation must occur in daily life and not just on the meditation cushion or at the meditation center. He explained to me how in Vietnam, Zen arts such as flower arranging and tea ceremony followed an aesthetic that was less formal and rigid than their Japanese counterparts. He emphasized the naturalness, joy, and spontaneity of these practices, especially the tea ceremony, which for Tay was not only about enjoyment of the tea, but also about drinking tea together with others. Another highlight of our time with Tay was the arrival of Daniel Berrigan, the non-traditional Jesuit priest who was a close friend of his. Dan recorded his talks with Tay, and these would become the basis of a future book, The Raft is Not the Shore, Conversations Toward a Buddhist Christian Awareness. Dan was a wonderful man, a great storyteller, a man of true integrity who looked to Tay as a brother and a mentor. For Dan, Tay was a fellow celibate, celibate mon monastic, nonviolent activist, poet, writer, and deeply committed contemplative. Dan was unable to find such mentors within his own tradition. Thomas Merton had died in 1968. And it was both inspiring and instructive for me to listen and sometimes participate in their dialogues about the mistaken belief that the activist and meditative life were at odds. They both believed strongly that a contemplative discipline was essential for the maintenance of the emotional well-being of the committed activist. Tay said that activities to better the world and end war were simply love in action, and he based his Buddhist activism on a non-dual view of reality. Both men shared the tenet that those who believed strongly in nonviolence and the contemplative life as the basis of societal transformation needed to establish what Tay called communities of resistance. I once went with Sister Fuang to a Vietnamese temple in Paris to meet the resident monk who, she said, respected Tay and would meet with him privately, but could not receive him in the temple because of fear of parishioner backlash. When I returned to the apartment, Tay asked me if I had seen the temple's altar dedicated to Quan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. 
I still feel a chill when I remember how he looked straight at me and asked, Fred, do you know the best offering to make to the Bodhisattva of compassion? He then held up his two hands and said, these are the true offerings to give her. During our stay that fall, a deep sadness had begun to take hold of Tay and Sister Fuang. For many months, with the peace accord signed, they had been seeking visas from the Vietnamese embassy in Paris to return to Vietnam. Both Tay and Fuang intensely wanted to return to their homeland to see once more the friends and family they loved and missed so dearly. And what was equally important, now that the war had ended, they wanted to return to participate in the rebuilding of their country as it recovered from social and economic devastation. I recall, I recall Tay saying that he wanted to work among Vietnam's hill tribes, which had suffered greatly in the past under the ruling Vietnamese. But after being given an endless and frustrating runaround for months by the NLF representatives in Paris, he and Fuang finally realized that they were never going to be given an entry visa by the new regime. Their temporary exile in the West would now become permanent. Their grief was palpable. On the last day of our visit to Sko, Tay and Sister Fuang drove us to the airport. In Parisian traffic, the journey took almost two hours. It was on that ride that Tay began to tell me the history of the Teep Heen Order, now called the Order of Interbeing, and the Buddhist teachings that underpinned its precepts and activities. I was so inspired that I spontaneously asked him to ordain me right there in the car. Tay calmed me down and said that with the disruption caused by the war and his exile to France, there had been no ordinations after those of the original six members. At that point in time, he was unsure whether the order would have a future even in Vietnam, much less the rest of the world. He assured, however, he assured me, however, that if it was not that if it was ever resuscitated, he would not forget my aspiration. Postscript, November 2020. I wrote the above reflection in October 2010 while in St. Petersburg, Florida. Sitting here in my Tampa home as an ordained member of the now global order of interbeing, reading over these recollections that I wrote down 10 years ago, I feel so fortunate to have encountered Tay when he was in his 40s and a relative unknown in the world of Buddhism. And so to have been allowed many personal interactions with him, I did not realize at the time where history would be taking Tay. I made no recordings and took no notes of our conversations in 1975 or during my many visits in the following decades. I can rely only on my memory, which I know is an imperfect instrument. Of course, over time, he was discovered, as he deserved to be, and millions of Buddhists and non-Buddhists have been able to benefit from his deep wisdom and compassion. As true bodhisattvas do, he showed me the way in this life, not just by his words, but more importantly, by his presence, his embodiment of everything he taught. I can only bow deeply to him. Fred Epsteiner, Epsteiner is a Dharma teacher in the lineage of Thich Nhat Hanh. He practices the Zen and Tibetan traditions, but bases his teachings on the full breadth of Buddhist philosophy, psychology, and meditation. 
I thought that article was an excellent example of treading the middle path, um, which I think is really beneficial in all, all aspects of life. Um, you know, if you're sitting on a meditation cushion and living as a monastic, you know, four to eight hours a day, what's the rest of your, what's the rest of your life look like? Um, other than just maintenance of, you know, your chores and, and feeding yourself and sleeping, um, you could be affecting real change in the world. Um, and I think this, this idea of the middle path is, uh, something that's very valuable to you with, uh, kind of your movement or fitness practice. Um, it's easy, uh, to get into a movement practice or a fitness practice that's just kind of tunnel vision focused on one thing or the other, such as endurance. You know, some folks will get into running and they'll run, run, run until they have, you know, they'll run marathons, they'll have hip bursitis, and then they'll start doing triathlons so they can swim and bike as well, but you're still just training endurance. Um, or, you know, some folks will really get into powerlifting and want to bench press or squat or deadlift the max amount of weight that they can do one time, which is just pure strength training, right? With kind of letting some of the other stuff fall by the wayside. However, I think for optimal fitness and really just optimal health and wellness, it's better to take the middle path. Um, so what's the middle path look like? What are kind of the parameters of the path, you may be asking? And for that, I think um, the CrossFit Journal um, has a pretty good outline. CrossFit's just a methodology of training. But they identify 10 general physical skills. Um, and, and they argue that if your goal is optimal physical competence, then all these general physical skills need to be considered. I think even more than just physical competence, just, just maintaining health and wellness. I think these 10 physical skills should sort of all be integrated into a training regimen or a movement practice. Um, and I'll go ahead and read over what those are. Uh, cardiovascular, or excuse me, cardiovascular respiratory endurance, the ability of the body systems to gather, process, and deliver oxygen. Stamina. The ability of body systems to process, deliver, store, and utilize energy. Strength. The ability of a muscular unit or combination of muscular units to apply force. Flexibility. The ability to maximize the range of motion at a given joint. Power. The ability of a muscular unit or combination of muscular units to apply maximum force in minimum time. So if you think of something like some explosive movement, would be a power movement. Speed, the ability to minimize the time cycle of a repeated movement. Coordination, the ability to combine several distinct movement patterns into a singular distinct movement. Agility, the ability to minimize transition time from one movement pattern to another. Balance. The ability to control the placement of the body's center of gravity in relation to its support base. 
And then the tenth one, accuracy. The ability to control movement in a given direction or at a given intensity. So those are the ten general physical skills. And so what would a middle path kind of training program look like um, where you're kind of hitting all those things? The way I like to set it up and the way that I train myself and others is every, every physical practice that I do, every physical movement practice that I do starts with balance training, mobility training, and coordination training. Um, and it's a flowing uh, type of generalized warm-up that, be, that can be as short as five minutes or extended as long as 15 minutes. And then I move on to the meat of the practice, which is generally a combination or one or the other of strength, power, endurance, uh, coordination, uh, mostly with kettlebells. But there's these great kind of in-between activities you can do. Um, so maybe you do a really hardcore kettlebell workout on Monday, strength-focused. Maybe it's kind of high volume, high intensity. You still need to move on Tuesday, right? You should do some sort of movement practice every day. But you don't want to do the same type of workout. Um, and you also, so maybe you're going to do another high-intensity kettlebell workout on Wednesday. You also don't want to do a... You don't want to do something that's going to hinder your readiness for that, that tough workout coming up on Wednesday. So some options for some middle path movement practices are nasal breathing cardio. Um, I like to use the echo bike, but the skier works great. The rower works great. Jogging is fine. However, that tends to hurt my readiness quite a bit and is pretty rough on my joints at uh, 40 now. Even though it's pretty young, if you look at some of these guys that are in their 60s that are just in, cre in incredible shape, it's really inspiring. But I feel a little old when I run now. Um, and so what, what's nasal breathing do? There's lots of claims right now about nasal breathing and it it enhancing your cardio and the musculature of your face and this and that. It's kind of... It's kind of uh, trendy right now. However, the way I use it for is just to regulate intensity. So if you just, if you're targeted, if you just set a timer, for example, 20 minutes, echo bike, nasal breathing only, where the target of your workout on that echo bike is simply to only breathe through your nose. So it doesn't matter how fast you go, doesn't matter how hard you go, doesn't matter how much you sweat, but just simply breathing through the nose. And that will naturally regulate your intensity. You're still getting tons of blood flow. It's like a systemic cardiorespiratory workout, and it, it enhances my recovery, is what I found anecdotally. So I'll be more recovered if I do a 20-minute nasal breathing uh, echo bike ride uh, than if I just took a full-blown rest day. Um, two other practices that I absolutely love are animal flow and yoga asana. Um, and the reason I love those so much is because they're real middle path types of practices. And they, they're fantastic for increasing flexibility, balance, agility, coordination, and accuracy, which are oftentimes very, very neglected in most programs and in most programming you'll find. Um, and they increase strength uh, as well too because they 
especially the animal flow, you're using, you're moving at different angles and the resistance profile of manipulating your body weight in that fashion has a really interesting effect on your strength. You kind of get strong at all angles. Um, and yoga asana, if you're not familiar with that, that's just the physical practice of yoga. It's what most people think of as yoga, the postures. Um, so animal flow and yoga asana are excellent middle path practices. Nasal breathing cardio. Um, you know, go on a walk. That's an excellent, that's an excellent uh, middle path practice. Um, I heard... Uh, a trainer I follow, Marcus Martinez, he's a kettlebell guy. He said that walking is the most underrated exercise by people under 50 and the most overrated exercise by people over 50. And I couldn't agree more with him. I love it. So that's all I really got on the middle path. Um, just solo podcast today. I wanted to get one out. I haven't really had much stuff to uh, offer lately. Um, if you're interested more... And the first passage I read uh, about the article about Thich Nhat Hanh, again, that's in the Spring 2021 Buddhist Review uh, Tricycle magazine. And if you're interested in CrossFit methodology or um, anything about the general physical skills that they talk about, um, I pulled that from the CrossFit Journal October 2002 um, issue. And I just want to finish off uh, the podcast with a little bit of meta meditation. Meta is a Buddhist term for one-way love or unilateral love, also known as Christ love. Um, I believe in ancient Christianity, they called it agape, A-G-A-P-E. Um, and this meditation that I'm going to read... I think, I think we can all use it. I think the world needs it right now. It's from the book Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness by Rick Hansen, Ph.D. May all beings be happy and secure. May all beings be happy at heart omitting none, whether they are weak or strong, seen or unseen, near or distant, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let none deceive another or despise anyone anywhere, or through anger or ill will, wish for another to suffer. Just as a mother would protect her child, her only child, with her own life, even so you should cultivate a boundless heart toward all beings. You should cultivate kindness toward the whole world with a boundless heart. Above below, and all around, unobstructed, without enmity or hate, whether standing, walking, sitting, 
or lying down. As long as you are alert, you should be resolved upon this mindfulness. This is called a sublime abiding here and now. Namaste.